Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. It is Thursday, January 16th, and we are all recording from San Francisco, where we spent all week running around the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. And it's been a long week. And now finally, J.P. Morgan is over. We'll recap what happened and perhaps most importantly, what didn't happen at the conference. So perhaps the biggest story of J.P. Morgan Week was the launch of EQRX, a new company that aims to develop medicines at lower costs and then sell them at lower prices. We'll talk to founder Alexis Borisi about how this is all planned to work. Then we'll talk to Stephen Buck, the healthcare entrepreneur behind a new website that aims to give cancer patients information about their prognosis. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. So as you listen to this, biotech's biggest annual conference is winding down. That is, of course, the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, which takes place every year in January in San Francisco and has, at least for the past 20 years that it's been called J.P. Morgan, been an escalatingly large gathering of biotech executives, hangers-on, analysts, protesters, and, and even reporters. Tired reporters. Right, exactly. So a lot of things, I think, differentiated this year, maybe from years past. And so why don't we kind of go around and talk about that? Adam, how was your experience? So maybe the news of the conference was the lack of news, which is a kind of a weird way of going about this. But clearly, there was a lot of expectations for news, particularly deals, M&A type stuff that would have happened on the Monday of J.P. Morgan. It didn't happen. So people were a little bummed out about that. You know, at the end of the day, I don't know if think we've said this in, in some stories this week, that it's always hard to time deals. It doesn't mean that deals aren't going to happen at some point this year. I think for certain companies, it maybe was more disappointing. For instance, Gilead Sciences, you know, I think people really want to see them make a significant acquisition. And there was, you know, a good bit of expectation that they would come to J.P. Morgan with a deal in hand to kind of show that they're doing something. And they didn't. And so, you know, if you look at the stock today, it's down, you know, from the start. But overall, stocks actually are kind of, you know, up to flat. The impact was probably negligible. Yeah, I think that's right. I think some of those trends played out too in the health tech sector, which over the last few years has had more and more of a presence at JP Morgan. People I talked to uh, thought that sentiment was pretty positive. Um, there's always, you know, people who are worried that think the sector is is sort of overvalued or potentially a bubble that could pop at, at any moment. We also didn't see any big M&A in that space. But I think it's an area that will, in future years, um, keep having more and more of a presence here. So, Damien, what do you think about the crowds this year versus, you know, years past? Yeah, well, I think the narrative at last year's J.P. Morgan was that of a critical mass of, like, disgruntlement. So San Francisco is at least the Union Square area where the conference takes place, is not necessarily well-suited for that large of an influx of people. That's true, especially of the Westin St. Francis Hotel, where the proper J.P. Morgan conference takes place. And then San Francisco has a homelessness crisis, and it has truly like social issues that the city is struggling with, if that's even, that might be generous. And so there was, like I said, a critical mass of people who go every year saying, you know, I think I'm done with this. It costs so much. There's price gouging to just have a chair. Um, I'm going to stay home. And I think... 
going into the conference, I was curious as to whether that would be palpable once we got here. And I think it very much was. I think that it was a less crowded experience. I think the streets reflected that. I think just everything I went to was just demonstrably quieter and less cramped. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I feel like there were less people going into bars, going into coffee shops, even in the hotels. It just seemed like there were fewer people here for JPM week than I can remember in a long time. I agree with all of that. I think it'll be interesting to see next year if the people who stayed home regret it and end up coming back in 2021, we could see kind of the the pendulum swing back in the other direction. And then maybe we should mention something on a lighter note. There was a billboard in Union Square um, with a little bit of a problem to it. Rebecca, what, what was going on there? So the DNA molecule was left-handed or backwards. This is something that does not exist in nature. And it's something that seems like people just get wrong so often. We've probably gone on too long not talking about the star of the conference because I haven't actually crushed the numbers on this, but I'm relatively sure the best performing stock, biotech stock, coming out of J.P. Morgan belongs to a company called NantQuest, founded by a man named Patrick Soon-Shang. It's important to caveat that the stock's rough doubling means that it went from around $1 to around $2 a share, but it was still interesting to watch from afar. And Rebecca, why did this happen? What happened with Patrick that made everyone so excited? So the catalyst here was Patrick gave an interview with Bloomberg TV in which he touted data from one patient with pancreatic cancer who got uh, treatment that his companies are developing. Today and tomorrow we'll be announcing at this healthcare conference that we have now with our natural killer cell, which we've engineered a complete response in the patient with the metastatic pancreatic cancer that had failed all other treatment. That is impressive within a really devastating disease, but normally a single patient's worth of data does not swing stocks, especially not on JP Morgan Monday. We learned the next day that in fact, this patient's response has lasted two months so far, which again, encouraging great for this patient, but that is such a short amount of time that's nowhere near uh, the durability that oncologists are looking for. So it was a very strange episode, and I think it pointed to the void of other news. So before people started making such a big deal of not going to J.P. Morgan, I think a big part of the utility of the conference is that it takes place in January and everybody gets together. And it's a chance for people to sort of barometrically decide how the year is going to play out in biotech. So to the extent that that's even possible, Adam, how do you think, based on what happened this week and the conversations you had, what are you thinking about how 2020 will go? I mean, I think some people were, again, disappointed that there was kind of this lack of news. And so I think people kind of leave the conference with a little bit of uncertainty. If we were directionally going on the upswing and there was a lot of activity, I think people would leave here, you know, very optimistic, particularly as we sort of, you know, if you remember the end of the year, December, people were sort of gangbusters. There was a lot going on. So maybe people are a little bit apprehensive. I don't think that anyone is panicking at all. Um, There's a little bit of concern. No panicking yet. The biggest story out of JP Morgan this week was not a merger, nor a market reaction, nor a tone-deaf party. Instead, it was a biotech startup that raised a bunch of money to make the drug industry mad. So the company in question is called EQRX, and its goal is to quickly develop new drugs that work as well as existing blockbusters, and then sell them for cut-rate prices. 
The idea was enough to convince some big-name venture capitalists to invest $200 million, but EQRX's plan left more than a few people scratching their heads at JP Morgan. At the conference this week, Adam and our colleague Matt Herper sat down with Alexis Borisi. He's the biotech VC who co-founded the new company to dig deeper into its ambitions. So really interesting idea for this company. We've heard a lot of feedback today. A lot of people love the idea. A lot of people hate it. But I feel like a lot of them are still struggling with getting it. So having had the experience of talking about this with everyone all day, give us another summary of exactly what EQRX is going to do. I think in a lot of ways, it's a very simple idea, which is given with where technologies have gotten to today, we can create extremely high quality new medicines, fast following on proven biology, and we can create those innovative new medicines that are equally as good or better. And we can do it in a way that we can build a company purpose-built at scale that we can sell those medicines, make them available to society at a radically more affordable price point and still build a business that is as profitable, if not more profitable, than the industry today. And so, Alexis, you sit on the board of directors of Blueprint Medicines. They just won approval for their first targeted cancer drug. It costs $32,000 a month. Now, why should anyone believe that you're sincerely interested in developing affordable branded drugs at EQRX when you're still actively involved with Blueprint, which is doing exactly the opposite? Look, I'm a man of uh, multiple hats. The most important hat is trying to bring breakthrough medical innovation to patients and society. We all want to live healthier, longer lives as much as possible. And we're in a golden age of scientific innovation that's making a lot of that possible. I am so proud of what the team at Blueprint has done. I'm so proud as a co-founder of that company, as a CEO of the company at a point in time, and as a director today. And Blueprint has been doing exactly what Blueprint is supposed to do as an individual company. But it highlights an issue that we have a tragedy of the commons. The whole reason that the opportunity for EQRX exists today is that Prices have gone up higher and higher. And the generation that I've been in this business, the price of a new, significant new medicine has gone up by more than an order of magnitude above the rate of inflation. Why? Let's just call a spade a spade here. Because as an industry, uh, we can. And you can literally watch the ratchet go up one drug after the next over time over those 25 years from where a great cancer drug coming to the market when I first got involved in this business in the mid-90s, inflation-adjusted, mind you, might be $20,000 in today's uh, dollars, whereas now new medicines are more than an order of magnitude more. And Alexis, I don't mean to pick on Blueprint because they're not the only ones, obviously, that are doing this, but do you think it's impossible for a company like a Blueprint to develop a drug and price it affordably? So Blueprint is acting, right, in the interests of its shareholders, and you could make the argument it has a fiduciary responsibility to do that action. And so my point as to why we need a company like EQRX at this point in time is because those prices have gone ever higher. Yet at the same time now, we could not have done this five years ago, certainly not 10. It is possible today to rethink, reimagine, re-engineer the whole process of literally how you come up 
with the drug itself, how you prove it works, and how you sell it, and the spread there, if you will, between those ever higher prices that we as an industry charge and underlying the way that we see at EQRX that what you can actually do to bring the medicines out, that spread, that is the opportunity for EQRX. If you are developing an equivalar that's better than an existing drug, which a normal drug company would probably price it more. It's more effective. It's a better example. It's Lipitor to Zocor. And just to clarify, Equivalar is what you're calling these drugs that you're going to be developing uh, at EQRX, right? That That's called an Equivalar. Correct. And it goes to both everything that EQRX is saying that it stands for. So the social contract that we're being very public and putting out there, but also there will be real contracts that we have made with parts of the healthcare system and the whole model of both how we will be working closely with different parts of the healthcare system, which there'll be more to come uh, in time, and also our commercial model of how we actually bring these drugs to be available uh, for patients, to be prescribed by physicians. Those types of partnerships, the whole way we're bringing them to market, if we jacked the price on that Equivalar that turned out by far to be the best in class, that would ruin the whole approach of what we're doing on everything else. So if you will, there's a fundamental premise here that at scale, yes, our individual products, right, will not end up being $3 billion or $5 billion products. They might end up being a few hundred million dollars. But being able to do this at scale with dozens of drugs, that we are building a very compelling business model so EQRX said today, or I should say you said today, that your first drug would be approved and on the market in five years, uh, 10 drugs approved and on the market in 10 years. You know, that suggests that you already know what your first targets are. So can you tell us a little bit more about what those are? And if not, when will we know what those first targets are? Yeah, so more to come when, when it's unveiled. Obviously, you'll know when we're conducting clinical studies because they'll all be uh, registered at clinicaltrials.gov uh, and be out there. You know, we've said we're going to be focused in the areas of oncology, immunoinflammatory, and the not-so-rare uh, rare genetic diseases, and that there'll be small molecule drugs and classical biologics and monoclonal antibodies uh, to start. Alexis, you've raised $200 million. It's a lot of money, but you're going to need even more to do this. What's the next kind of inflection point where you can go back to investors and ask them to, to fund this more? So $200 million for this business model is just a small start, if you will, a down payment and getting going. So I think it's great. Well, we've been very pleased to see the type of response and reception that the ideas had, but it's a vision at this point. You asked the question earlier on sort of assets. Well, we need to show like, here's the first five to 10 programs we're working on. Here's how we're working with different parts of the healthcare system. And here's uh, the team and how we've built it out. And I think those things will then make it very clear to the next step for the company. Alexis, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Always. Conversations about prognosis after a cancer diagnosis can be really fraught and challenging, but they can also be really important for patients who want to be able to plan and cope based on accurate information about their odds of survival. And that's the thinking behind the free website that launched this month called CancerSurvivalRates.com. It comes from a public benefit corporation called Courage Health. 
Joining us today to talk about the new site is Courage's CEO and founder, Stephen Buck. He is a healthcare entrepreneur who previously co-founded the drug coupon site, GoodRx. Stephen, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Damon, thank you. So Stephen, explain to us um, at a very basic level how the website works. If I've been diagnosed with cancer and I navigate to your website, what happens next? Sure. So there's a number of patients that are out there searching on Google for cancer survival rates. And so by the time they get to our site, they click on it, they enter the type of cancer which they're searching on, and then they'll put in some information about themselves. And this is meant to to kind of show a population-based kind of statistics and metrics. So someone who's looking for someone like themselves who may have had cancer, they can get the survival rates for that group. Very simple. So you deliver this information in terms of a patient's odds of surviving five years. Why did you choose to present the information that way, as opposed to, say, telling patients, on average, someone like you has three years left? Well, it's important to note that we don't do individual uh, prognosis. So we're reporting population-based metrics. So someone's using this to see what happened to other people that may have a similar type of profile. But the reason why we chose to present it this way is because we made it really simple for someone to understand. So a lot of times, complex kind of terminology and the metrics that they're given, like median survival rates, can be very confusing. So we make it simple by saying, in five years out of 10 people, here's how many are alive. And then they can look at that from a two-year perspective and a one-year perspective. Because what we found with health literacy, that a lot of people are confused by the numbers and the metrics that their doctors may have shared with them. And so it's kind of impeding them from making different decisions about their life. So you touched on this a little bit, but before you launched the site, what options were available to cancer patients looking for this kind of information? So I think first to back up a little bit on that question is that normally, you know, this conversation is going to happen with their doctor when they're diagnosed, but sometimes it just doesn't happen. Or the conversation happens and the patient doesn't understand. And so they're going out to the website, they're looking for that type of information, and they're looking in particular for things that are going to help them to, you know, make treatment decisions, to go out and plan for their future, those types of things. So when I think about this question of how the patients, you know, initiate these types of searches and what they're looking for, I think they're looking for, you know, answers that they can trust that's based upon real data that has been validated, but it's also something that leads to a better conversation. So that's the most important thing here is that the patients are kind of using this information uh, about the population to ask their doctor for the in- their individual kind of prognosis details. So Stephen, how do doctors feel about this? I think that some are concerned that people go out and Google and get a bad impression of what their condition is because there's some things about their particular case, as, you know, specific mutations, um, you know, the genetic profile that would make their situation very different from the population as a whole. And so I think they get concerned. They want to protect people from rushing off and making bad decisions off of this. So I think a lot of them want to to work with patients when they do search out information and explain it to them. I I don't think that there, and and this is based upon a lot of the feedback we've had from working closely with oncologists, they don't want to prohibit people from seeking out this information. They want to help them uh, contextualize it and understand it so that they can kind of uh, reach kind of a common understanding about the patient's goals and what they want to accomplish in their lives. So I think that if anything, what we've said is this should be, you know, the fact that a patient comes in to, you know, a doctor's office and said, I was out looking at the site, cancersurvivalrates.com, and here's what the numbers showed for the population. 
that should be a signal to that doctor that they either didn't understand or that they missed, there was a communication breakdown someplace and that they can take this opportunity to really educate the patient about what their individual prognosis is and talk about how they might respond to these new treatments uh, differently. Um, it, just to expand a little on the treatment piece that in an age now, and the research is coming out um, because of immunotherapies, that people are now hearing these wonderful stories of response. Uh, the, the question is that every person coming in may say, am I going to be that responder? Uh, and so this is something where uh, prognosis and that detailed discussion is so important because as these, you know, more and more of these happen, um, it's exciting times, certainly. But uh, I think doctors want to make sure everyone's understanding uh, where they're at. You know, when you consulted with patients in putting together this website, did you get any pushback from uh, folks who thought maybe this wasn't something that they wanted? Well, there's certainly some segment of patients who don't want to know, and so they don't seek out the information. Uh, we're specifically geared towards the people who are actively searching. So we in no means are kind of suggesting that we force out this information or that people should go ahead and go to our site if they're not looking for the information. So we're really just addressing those that are uh, typing in that Google search bar. So it's a website that provides, you know, cancer survival rates. And so that can be information that is distressing to people to read. So I'm curious, when thinking about designing the website and, and putting it together and kind of the user experience, if that's the right term. You know, these are very serious subjects, uh, regardless of the the kind of the stats, that these are things that we encourage. We put a lot of time and effort into structuring questions to kind of be a structured conversation. So take these three com questions into your doctor uh, and ask them to keep it very, very simple. I think the other thing that we did, thinking about the patient, that we explored palliative care and getting that awareness levels, especially if you, if you notice on the site, uh, for people who might put in an advanced stage cancer, the questions uh, to ask shift a little bit to say, maybe it's a good opportunity for you to ask about palliative care, that you can do this at any time and to start that process because many patients never ask about it. And it, go, it becomes a, a missed opportunity for many of them to, to kind of change their quality of life. That's one of the things that influenced us a lot were these stories by patients uh, who said, I didn't know how much time I had left. I didn't know that I could have had these other options. And they were so heartbreaking to hear. And so we've purposely kind of structured this flow because when I was talking to a palliative care doctor in particular, they just looked across the table and said, you know, they want to start with this number. And, and then from there, you've got their attention. Uh, and then you can shift into the conversation of, okay, here's the number about these survival rates. Now let's figure out the right engagement on that you know, deeper conversation with their doctor. If I had structured it the other way around, they may have just dropped off the site because that's what really wasn't the, what they were looking for in that case. So once again, the website is cancersurvivalrates.com. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Debanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how you spent J.P. Morgan. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And of course, if you like what we do, please do leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. <laughs>